radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions. And follow us on social media. Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. Today is April 19th, and we're fast approaching the 100th day of President Biden's first term in office. Today's guest, Jonathan Zucker, will help Sean and me evaluate the Biden administration's performance to date and generally determine the state of the nation. Jonathan is, among other things, a fellow graduate of Georgetown Law, an entrepreneur, and something of a political insider. We're very fortunate to have him on the show. But before we get into that conversation, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. Speaking of the blog, Sean, you wrote a great article this week for the Radical Secular blog. Why don't you give our audience a quick overview? Okay, sure. The article was called Privilege, and it's really addressing the issue of white privilege and also the privilege of wealth and other kinds of privilege. And it's something I think it is key to liberalism to understand. There's a lot of pushback that has happened from the right in terms of, you know, identity politics. And a lot of people don't like to hear that they're privileged. And I, I, I guess <laughs> if you focus grouped it, it probably wouldn't test very well in terms of motivating voters. But it is important ideologically. And it's important to get our heads right about it because it's like our guest last week talked about. You just can't let the curmudgeons dictate your ideology, right? Just because we can't convince people right now that they need to own their privilege is not a reason not to say it because you will reach some people who will start to understand. And then gradually those are the early adopters. And then gradually then you get the late adopters. And then you're not going to get KKK members to understand the concept <laughs> of white privilege. And that's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking to other liberals who can start to understand that the same way we look at the privilege of wealth, okay? Wealthy people don't have money problems. They may have other problems, but they don't have money problems. And this is the same thing with white people. White people may have plenty of problems, but it's not because of their skin color. And mm -hmm. that was the major point of, of the article. And I go into a lot more detail. And I would just encourage people to approach this with an open mind and understand that I'm not attacking white people. I am one. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get us to come up higher and say, hey, we can do better. We can actually acknowledge this and it's not going to hurt us. It's no skin off our nose to acknowledge what we've had and the advantages and that we could maybe start to broaden those advantages to cover everyone. Yeah, that's a really well said, Sean. And it was an outstanding article. Everyone should absolutely read it. And it was especially powerful this week, given the uh, high profile uh, shootings of black men. And as a black person myself, obviously, the I cannot stress enough how powerful it is to how much I appreciate you and I appreciate folks, you particularly because you're my friend and my co-host, but also folks out there that are allies and that are willing to look critically at themselves. I I mean, I think of this in terms of, uh, we, uh, you and I have talked about this in terms of male privilege, right? We talk about mm -hmm. this in terms of the, the privilege of being straight, right? So it, the, I can understand these concepts 
from that perspective. So I'm I'm heartened, especially given the dark history of racism in this country and privilege in this country, both both, both among wealth and and race, to hear that. And I really would encourage everybody to go and read it. It was really powerful, Sean, and and I appreciate you for that. Well, thank you, Christoph. That that means a lot always coming from you. So, yeah, yeah, and I mean it. Okay, we're gonna do the T-shirts and the news during our guest segment today. So I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our guest. Very impressive guy, by the way. Jonathan Zucker operates at the intersection of technology, politics, fundraising, and law. He's an innovator in the area of political technology and is the founder and CEO of an organization named Democracy Engine. Before forming Democracy Engine, Jonathan was the executive director for Act Blue, the nation's largest source of funds for Democrats, and he transformed the organization into fundraising powerhouse with more than $87 million raised. Jonathan served as a national director of operations for finance at the Democratic National Committee, where he presided over the DNC's record-breaking $100 million major donor program in 2004. And he's been involved with a wide variety of progressive and democratic organizations as a field organizer, fundraiser, administrator, and attorney, including the Interfaith Alliance, Human Rights Campaign, Gill Foundation, and the Democratic Leadership Council. Jonathan earned his bachelor's degree in political science from Yale University and his JD from Georgetown University. So without further ado, The Radical Secular presents Jonathan Zucker. Jonathan, we're really happy to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about you and a little bit about your t-shirt? So we'll start with me. So my background is I'm a campaign finance attorney who specializes in political technology and in particular innovations in campaign finance, how and who funds political elections. My background there goes all the way back to um, 2003, um, 2004 cycle at the DNC. After that, I joined ActBlue. There are two guys who founded it. I was the third person involved. I did that for four years, helped take ActBlue from $800,000 to $80 million. Of course, they're now at like, what, $8 billion. And then I started a company called Democracy Engine because while I loved what ActBlue was doing, one, ActBlue had grown up, and two, ActBlue was focused on how do campaigns at that point in time and now progressive nonprofit organizations fund themselves. And I'm a little more interested in how we solve the problem of bringing new donors and new innovations into campaign finance. So lately, I've been working for the last couple of years, well, really since election night in 2016, a project of how we can turn recurring donations into funding for candidates. So how do we start on day one of a two-year cycle with recurring donations that can split, then get, then get split among all the Democrats running for state legislature or all the Democrats running for Congress? It's mostly a concept project. But at the same time, over the last four years, we've moved about a million dollars. It's called It Starts Today, which is sort of a playoff of the recurring and the, the recurring donations and the power of that. But you know, my most of my professional life is really democracy engine and helping other organizations, everyone from NARAL to the environmental movement, raise money from their supporters for candidates for office from municipal elections all the way through the presidency. Very nice. Yeah. Very impressive. And my t-shirt. Can't forget my t-shirt. So in addition to you know, what I do professionally, I also uh, serve on some boards. And one of the boards that I serve on is an organization here in DC called HIPS, which uh, is about 20 years old and focuses on harm reduction in the sex worker and particularly IV drug user community. And that's where this t-shirt comes from. 
Oh, wow. And um, what does your t-shirt take, say? Yeah, let's take a look says, at it. What does it say? It, yeah, it says be kind to sex workers. Ah, yes. That is one of Perfect. one of Hips's, you know, long, long standing slogans is be kind to sex workers. They also have t-shirts, be kind to drug users, but it's about harm reduction and and serving communities of people, particularly in the street economy, who fall through the cracks of other social service organizations, be it government or or charitable. Wow. That is that's so fucking awesome, man. <laughs> that is like really great work to do. I mean, yeah. that especially the harm reduction stuff is something that's very close to my heart. As a person who has struggled with drugs in my past life, I don't use drugs now, but I am not sober now either. But that said, that harm reduction model was something that has not been talked about enough in the addiction recovery mm-hmm. space. Rather, it ends up being this sort of punitive um, slash a God or religion based approach, which, which I think works for some people, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. And certainly, Certainly for people like you're saying, folks that are in the trenches, on the streets, in these sort of high-risk environments, right? Having a place, a process and an approach that that focus on harm reduction is just, it's very gratifying to me to see that. Yeah. Harm reduction is the future. It's just... It dovetails very well with our consequentialist approach that we take here, uh, utilitarian consequentialist Mm -hmm. approach, because... Nobody sticks up for these vulnerable people. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of shaming that goes on that Mm -hmm. tends to block any help. It's like, well, they shouldn't get helped because it should be painful to be a sex worker or a drug user. Right. Yeah. And it shouldn't be for either. And we are starting in the society to see drug addiction and, you know, and substance abuse as a medical problem, not a, not a criminal issue. And more and more states and cities are, are shifting their enforcement activities away from prohibition and law enforcement and towards harm reduction and, and treatment. And the reality of it is that when you treat addiction as a medical problem and you engage in harm reduction activities, you also reduce crime. You actually treat the problem and you have good public facing, not just good for the individual. Harm reduction is always going to be better for the individual, but it's also you have good public policy outcomes. And sex work, bluntly, it should never be. It shouldn't be criminal activity. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Ever. Yeah. But in a context where it is, or where even if it's not criminal, there are social social harms, you also want to engage in harm reduction there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really interesting too, because we're going to talk about this later on and I wanted to finish the t-shirts and move on, but this is such an interesting conversation. This is a lot of problem with how police officers end up interacting with people walking around the streets, right? Because you have these low level crimes that police officers are like a blunt instrument, right? They are a hammer And really what you need is social work. Really what you need is reforming these laws so that this activity isn't illegal in the first place, right? Because these things are not really causing social harms in half the cases. And really it's just a way in for the police officer. And then in that kind of environment, it does not take long before it escalates. Yeah. And, you know, and we we can talk more about this later, but yeah, the, the use of police to solve all social ills is a really big problem. And it's whether one wants to use the slogan defund or demilitarize or Mm -hmm. just- Reform. Reform. We just need reform. And one of the big reforms is exactly what you're saying. We need fewer armed officers responding to a much more narrow set of circumstances that may have something to do with public safety or public welfare, but we don't need to be sending armed officers out in all these cases. That's right. That's right. That's right. And that actually is a really great setup for my t-shirt, which is the Say Their Names t-shirt. And Absolutely. 
This is now very sadly out of date. It has all the names of the people who have died in police shootings. And we have to add two more names this week, at least. There's probably more that happened that I don't know about, but Dante Wright and Adam Toledo uh, were killed this last week. And it's just, I don't know. It makes me, um, I feel powerless to do anything about this. And I think a lot of other people feel the same way. Yeah, it's gut wrenching. It really is. I'm wearing my uh, we're going to be talking today about a lot of things. We're going to talk about uh, Joe Biden's presidency so far. And I'm wearing my although I did re- wear this recently, I just felt like I, there wasn't a better shirt for me to wear today than the my Joe Biden African-Americans for Joe Biden shirt. So everyone knows what it looks like probably already. But here it is. Yep, it's got the white and orange and brown bar for the E for the Joe. So you have the different shades of blackness and sort of represented. Yeah. So like, well, thanks for, you know, that intro, Jonathan. We're super happy to have you here. Thank you both for uh, doing the Mm t-shirts. I think that was an extraordinary uh, (laughs) t-shirt segment today. You already talked to us a little bit about your background and what you have been doing with your work, Jonathan. And and interestingly, we are, we share a, an alma mater, right? We both went to Georgetown Law. So what kind of law did you practice? Now, did you, when you got out of law school, did you just go right into practicing? Like, what was your sort of trajectory to where you are now? Um, It's actually interesting. I went to law school mostly because I like to know the rules. Mm -hmm. And academically, law school had the classes I was interested in. I actually couldn't find courses on civil rights, constitutional law, things that I was academically interested in beyond very shallow levels, even in PhD programs. I took all I could find undergrad. So law school from an academic standpoint made a lot of sense to me. And then also from a practical standpoint, it's just an incredibly versatile education because almost everything you do in a society is touched on by the law. And so when I went to law school, I was actually pretty sure I wasn't going to be a practicing attorney. I wanted the degree because it's practical and because it fit my academic interests at the end of the day. Um, What I did, but during law school, unlike most law students who spend their summers working in law firms or for public defenders offices or whatever, doing an internship, I actually was a field organizer for the human rights campaign both of my summers, working in LGBT at that point now, LGBTQ plus rights which I had actually gotten involved with when I was an undergrad, I identified straight, um, but I just got involved with queer rights because of interest and because of a few accidents that would be a much too long story to go into now. (laughs) And so that was how I spent my summers was as an organizer. And actually after my second year full-time in law school, I became the national field director for, as I proceed to lose the name of it, for the Interfaith Alliance, (laughs) which was sort of the, was at that point, had been created as a left of center political religious counterweight to the Christian coalition Mm -hmm. um, and learned an awful lot for a pretty atheistic secular individual about the um, religious left and the organizing there. And then I finished off the degree in night school and and, and part-time. And when I finished it, I started an organization um, that was designed to get straight allies involved with queer rights. That was what I did for the first couple of years after law school. And we were going along quite nicely until 9-11 happened, mm-hmm. and which you know, is me dating myself. And what happened is all, this, all the funders I had lined up were generally speaking much bigger donors to LGBT organizations. And while I had a lot of five and $10,000 pledges, I only had enough money to take me through early 2002. And with 
when 9-11 happened and all the small dollar donations started going to the Red Cross or people just held on mm-hmm. to their money because it was scary. Most of those donors redirected the funds they had promised me to the organizations that they gave twenty-five, fifty, dollars or $100,000 to. And the organization died. And I was sort of looking around, trying to figure out what to do, tried to spend some time doing working with some nonprofits. And honestly, George W. Bush cut taxes for a second time and said he was going to do it for a third time while he had lied his way into a pair of, well, he'd lied his way into one war. Mm-hmm. Afghanistan was pretty legitimate, particularly right. in 2003, but Iraq was just, what, what are we doing here? Right. And I decided he had to go. And so I started looking looking at the presidential campaigns on in the Democratic Party. And just before I, I was going to start sending out a resume, a friend of mine said, hi, do you remember so-and-so? I said, yeah, I think so. Well, she's going to call you because she's got a job for you at the DNC. And I joined the DNC. And that was really my path from where how I got from law school to there. And it was really only when I started working at the DNC that I started using my law degree in a professional capacity and really have become over the last, now most of 20 years since then, a pretty serious expert in how campaign finance and technology, specifically internet fundraising, all come together. Right. So so it sounds to me, right, one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that even though I know you have a lot of uh, insight on politics specifically, I want to talk about what you do because it's such a specific and niche thing that and but so critical, right? Like there is Mm -hmm. there is no the entire Democratic machine doesn't work without these financing sort of the machinery, the financing underneath. So what, I guess maybe you've talked about this a little bit, but maybe you want to get in a little bit more detail. So Democracy Engine, so what does your day-to-day look like there? I mean, are you on the phone with with donors? Are you on the phone with, like, how? what does that look like for you? Primarily, we provide technology to individuals and primarily organizations or communities that want to raise money for candidates. Mm-hmm. So givegreen. I think it's .com, it might be .org, is a project of NRDC, LCV, so National Resources Defense Council, the League of Conservation Voters, and Next Gen America. And it basically is the environmental movement's place to go to give money to candidates who are endorsed by these various organizations. It's a mm-hmm. big tech platform they, that they built themselves. Democracy Engine is the back end to process and distribute the contributions. But I work with them not only on the mechanics of it, but also on, on the front end. There's a piece of software that, that another vendor developed that works with Democracy Engine that we then license to groups like NARAL when they want to you know, endorse a bunch of candidates and raise money for them. And then there's the really exciting stuff. I mean, that's I love what these folks do, but there are clients and projects and apps that people are building that are designed to get people engaged with campaign finance through whether it's micro donations, for example, there was a Trump tweets or Donald donates was the name of the platform. And basically every time Trump tweeted, you made a donation to either a group of organizations, and this thing started in 2017, or to the eventual Democratic nominee for president. And so this community raised $25,000 for Joe Biden starting three years before Joe Biden started running for president. Yeah, so it was... It's those kinds of projects that really get me excited. CrowdPack is a relatively high profile, now left of center, 
engagement platform. We power them. So that's what that, that what's what we really do. It's about being the back end and sort of handling the processing and distribution in compliance with all campaign finance laws and anti-money laundering laws and the card brand rules and all of these things that all come colliding together when it comes to online fundraising. I see. And letting our customers or our clients or these communities that we work with focus on identifying their community, identifying the messages that are going to motivate their community, identify the tools that their community needs, and not have to worry about this very technical but critically important piece of it, how you charge the card or take the money from the bank mm-hmm. account, how you get it to the candidate, and how you do all that in compliance with a whole series of intersecting laws. And that's where I come in. I'm a lawyer who understands technology. I don't do any of the coding. The last time I did any programming was in high school, but (laughs) I understand what technology can do. I understand how databases are put together. And so that's where my abilities all come together. And then on the side, I pay a lot of attention to politics because of what I do. And that's why I work in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah. have an interesting follow-up on that because I was, as I'm listening to you describe all of this back-end stuff, right? Me as a donor and other Democrats and liberals who want to help in whatever way we can, we all have a set amount of money that we can afford mm-hmm. to donate, right? And so I get so many appeals, legal conservation voters, Sierra Club, NARAL, you know, it just goes on and on. And then, of course, that my Democratic uh, senators, congressmen, candidates, mm-hmm. Joe Biden, John Fetterman is raising money now. There's a whole, <laughs> so many. So how could we do something where I say, I can give $100 a month to all democratic causes and you guys decide where the money gets assigned? Is that something that is possible? Yes and no. The problem when it comes to actual, when it comes to organizations, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. And there have been various people over time who've created to, with greater and lesser degrees of success, what I would call sort of progressive organizational mutual funds. Um, Mm. You give money and it gets spread out of a bunch of places. A current personal favorite that's in that model is a a group called Defeat by Tweet Mm -hmm. that raises money for black and brown organizers and started with a every time Donald Trump tweets, you make a donation. And now they have basically, I think they're doing effectively the entire what we would call the Sedition Caucus all those mm-hmm. Republicans who voted against certification <laughs> of the election. Yeah, Pretty much yeah. anytime any of them tweets, that triggers a donation. And, <laughs> and again, I've worked with them, Democracy Change has worked with them on some of their projects. We worked on the stuff they did around Georgia because they were funding specifically candidates at that point in time and PACs at that point in time with the stuff they do for nonprofits. They use a different vendor, but they're great people, good friends. I love what they're doing. So the problem is when it comes to campaign finance, you really can't let someone else decide where your money is going. Mm, Um, I see. That's just the nature of campaign finance. You have to decide where your money is going. But one of the things that I am very interested in, and I keep going back to the Federal Election Commission for advisory opinions on general topics. I think I'm up to like eight or nine at this point. And the most recent one was what I would call a conditional endorsement or a conditional earmark, because there's just a way under federal campaign finance law without really diving down this rabbit hole where you can give money without knowing where it's going. The most generic is, I want to give money to the 2024 Democratic nominee for president. Mm-hmm. And you can give that money to a PAC. Um, this is basically actually how ActBlue works. Like mm-hmm. that is the legal model of ActBlue at the federal level. And you can do it where it's imprecise where you're giving it. And over the years, 
I've gone to the FEC on a number of occasions that, well, what about this? What about this slightly less precise thing and this slightly less precise thing? And the most recent one was a conditional earmark where you can actually condition it on future endorsements by an organization. Oh, that's so now imagine the use case. And the nice thing about it is you just have to, def- you have to break apart who is holding on to the money, what PAC is holding on to the money from what entity makes the endorsement. So if, for example, you make an earmark donation to Democracy Engine PAC, which has, does not care where this money is going, but you condition it on the endorsement of the radical secular. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say you guys are going to come up with a bunch of candidates that you're going to endorse, but you're not going to do that for a year or for two years or whatever it might be, or you're going to endorse a presidential candidate in 2024. It would be legal to, if you set it up right with the correct disclaimer language and all of that, for someone to give money now to the presidential candidate endorsed by the radical secular. Uh-huh. We should do that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you can do that kind of fundraising. And so those are the kind of boundaries. And that's the stuff that gets me excited. And that's where the legal background really comes into right. day to day sure. is figuring out these kinds of interesting things. There's a great um, client of ours called Doctors in Politics. And it's a group of doctors who got motivated by Trump's attack on, on mm-hmm. medical science. This mm-hmm. is before COVID, you know, mm. that, that we're just mm. attacked, you know, that we're really saying, hey, we're doctors and we need more doctors informing decisions that are being made around health policy. Sure. And so we're going to get together and we're going to back doctors who are running for Congress. And at the end, we, they have a 2022 fundraising program that they actually started raising for during the 2020 elections. Wow. That is going to be based on their set of endorsements that probably won't come out till March or April, 2022. And I worked with them to create a very long, it's like four pages, single space typed disclaimer (laughs) or recurring donations that allows this to be a program that you can just start giving. And every two years, they're going to come out with endorsements, but you can be charged once a month, every month and know that this group of doctors who you know and trust is going to endorse doctor candidates for Congress who you would want your money to go to. So that's how it plays out. But it is just difficult. Like this is a mechanism that could make the kind of thing you just mentioned work, but it Mm -hmm. is very difficult to do in campaign finance. Right, right. And that's really interesting. I think it's super important for our audience and for all Democrats out here and, and liberals and progressives who care about these causes to realize that there is this machinery behind the scenes that we need to be donating to these candidates, right? We need yeah. to be donating to because like none of the priorities that we want to see actualize and realize will happen otherwise. And then um, speaking of the politics, this episode of the Radical Secular Podcast is explicitly about politics. So let's get right after it. I want to keep the scope of the discussion sort of broad in the first instance. President Biden's all-important 100th day in office will be on April 30th. Uh, He enjoys a 59% approval rating. By comparison, Trump's approval rating was at 42% at this time in his presidency, and Obama's was at 65%. Jonathan, why is Biden's approval rating so high? What is he getting right? Well, honestly, I think he's getting the vast majority of things right. But I think that the one of the things that happened with that, that I think that Obama's election in 2008 really catalyzed was the final, and, and then Trump was the very tail end of this, but it really accelerated and made clear the shifts that has been going on in the partisan political environment in the US mm-hmm. that started in the 60s. Started with mm-hmm. the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, 
Johnson is very well, it's a very famous statement by Johnson, and I will not, I'm not going to quote it directly, as he signs the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, I don't know which bill, saying, I've just lost the South for the Democrats. They knew what they were doing. They knew the, the electoral political consequences of the actions. It was the right thing to do. They did it anyway. But that began a realignment that, that started to come into focus in the 80s, a good 15 years later. The Republican Party begins the Southern strategy in response to this to like, ha, we have an opening. We can actually go after these bluntly white racist voters who have been voting Democratic because Lincoln was a Republican and he freed the slaves. Like it's not like like it, it goes back that far. These were Democrats and their daddies and granddaddies, so to speak, were Democrats because Republicans had freed the slaves. It is all about race um, and racism in this simple view of things that I'm presenting. But that realignment begins in the late 60s. We start to see it in the 70s. Roe v. Wade piles on. And really, in my opinion, it's not so much that it changes who is being involved, but it makes it into a religious crusade. And I think that there's, there's been a lot of social science research showing that there's an incredible overlap between the voters who are shifting because of the civil rights movement and their embrace of abortion as a cause and life as a cause. Because you can organize around saving innocent unborn babies in a very explicit and open way that for a lot of these people, they weren't willing to get up in, in the pulpit and say, you can't vote for these people because they're supporting blacks or black. You, know, right, you, right, you, right, you right. can't be blatantly racist, but you can be blatantly pro-life. Sure, And sure. it gives you something to organize around. And there's an incredible overlap between the populations that shift out of the, the Democratic Party and, and their pro-life nature and also their views on race. So that starts happening. Reagan gets elected. The Republicans take the Senate for the first time in, in 40 some odd years in, I guess it was 86, and then lose it again. And then the House flips in 1994. Mm. Um, and that is really the first electoral consequence of the Bill Johnson sign. Basically, enough people had retired. People, incumbents kept getting voted for. But once they started retiring en masse, also you have it as, as Clinton's first midterm election, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's about a, a lot of dynamics to this. But all of this is happening. And when Obama gets elected in 2008, we see a real backsliding in the Republican Party. George W. Bush had pushed for compassionate conservatism and really was trying to open up the party not necessarily so much to black people, but definitely to Latinos, mm -hmm. brown people, mm -hmm. really trying to pull them in. He's a Spanish speaker, Texas. Mm -hmm. He had won elections, building a nice broad coalition of white conservatives and Hispanic conservatives. And he tries to bring that to the National Party. And Karl Rove is very much you know, behind that, regardless of, of, of where Rove's personal beliefs are. He knows that this is a good winning electoral strategy. With the election of Barack Obama, the nativism and the mm. racism of these Republican voters really starts to come to the fore. And eight years later, with the election of Donald Trump, the quiet parts are really being spoken out loud now. Mm -hmm. And that's the dynamic, and that's the environment against which Biden is being compared, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. or more hyperpartisan. So it is harder for a president to have the kind of approval ratings that even Obama, with all the racism mixed in, enjoyed or Clinton, or Reagan, or either of the Bushes in the early days. But Trump was uniquely unpopular <laughs> for good reason. Trump is, in, in very simple terms from my point of view, 
Trump is elected mostly because a segment of the political left takes the election off. They didn't mm -hmm. like Hillary Clinton. There's a lot of sexism mixed into that going back decades. Like it starts with her baking cookies comment in 1992 mm -hmm. when she's asked why she kept her job while her husband was governor. And she's like, I'm a Yale trained lawyer. I'm supposed right. to be baking. Like, 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 but at that point in time, that's where the misogyny starts creeping in because at that point in time, her response to that has a huge segment of the Republican of Republican leaning, a lot of independents and even a lot of Democrats are like, she's attacking me, my mom, my mm -hmm. sister, my, my wife, whoever it might be. She became an other. And as a consequence, fast forward, you know, to 2016, 3 million Obama voters vote third party, 4 million Obama voters not vote. And wow. that is more than enough. It depends exactly where they live. But that number of people, 7 million voters, no matter how you spread them across the country, <laughs> are more than enough to make up the votes that Clinton needed in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. There just weren't that many votes in those three states. There's no question that just the number of third-party votes in those states was enough to close the margin, much less the voters who stayed home. And that's how Trump wins. So he wins on a minority. He very quickly makes it clear that he is not going to be the president for everyone. From the day of his election, he is, I mean, he campaigned on grievance and he is, as president-elect, having won the election, he is attacking the election results. Right. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's arguing that, you know, for 3 million fraudulent votes that he claims he actually won the popular vote. Yeah. He won the electoral college. There's no question about that. But he didn't win the popular vote. And there's no question about that either. But he begins with the politics of grievances and even from that day, going through the inauguration and the largest crowd ever, where we can just look at the photos. <laughs> Everyone like, can we, just look at the photos. Right? We can just look at the photos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so basically that's the backdrop against which we compare Biden. And so while Biden's numbers aren't quite as good as Obama's, we're in a different world. It's only 12 mm -hmm. years later, but from, so, yeah. in terms of partisan behaviors, we're in a completely different world. And that speaks to the good job that Joe Biden is doing. He is trying to be a president for everyone. Mm -hmm. He is running into, not I won't say unprecedented because we have a precedent under Obama, but he is <laughs> running into absolute opposition from Republican elected officials on the Hill. Mm -hmm. But he's not running into that same level of opposition from Republican voters in the mm -hmm. population at large because he, unlike his predecessor, but like his predecessors going way back, really does believe that his job is to govern the country and to do good for the most people. His choices for his cabinet, his choices for his you know, senior staff in the White House. I mean, the only meaningful complaint that one can make in terms of who he is trying to bring in is, no, he has not brought in any explicit Republicans, though. Mm -hmm. Sounds like Cindy McCain is going to get a, a nice juicy ambassadorship, which will be <laughs> a nice PR move and she'll be a good ambassador. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the only complaint that, that I really think sticks is a lack of um, Asian American representation. Mm -hmm. And there are only so many places to go around and they probably should have done better. I don't know who exactly they get rid of because everyone they chose is great. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this, that's the only thing where I look at it. And I'm like, okay, that's a legitimate critique. But they didn't do it out of animus. They just didn't do it. He's already doing a great job with the sub-cabinet appointments. 
though the pace of those, which we can talk about later, is, is, is disappointing. But the approval rating really is just because it's a return to normalcy. Right. It's a return right. to a president who isn't in the news all the time, a president who is presidential, who speaks when he needs to, who speaks on issues he should speak to, who lets his press secretary be a press secretary, <laughs> uh, you know, who doesn't speak in 140 characters, but actually when he does issue statements or he does talk to the press, he'll sit down and talk to them. And who has made it clear from the policies and the legislation he has pushed forward that he is interested in helping everyone, even the ones who didn't vote for him. Yeah, And I think that's reflected in his approval rating. Yeah, right. And his approval rating, right? Even Republicans approve of his dealing with the vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. And and he's also, I think what's really important is delivering tangible sort of results, right? So, and that's, I think, differentiates him from Obama, right? Obama comes in and does the financial crisis and he bails out the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this is not something that was immediately felt by average folks and in a good way anyway. Meanwhile, Biden shows up with vaccines. Biden shows up with stimulus checks, right? He stays out of the limelight. I think what your point that he is not in everyone's face all the time is just such a relief. And I seem to have forgotten what president felt like before, after four years of, of Trump. Sean, what do you, do you have any comments on this? Well, a, f- a few things. I mean, it was funny. There, there was a Republican the other day. I, f- I forget the name, but he actually attacked Biden for being boring in his tweets. And oh, yeah, I heard this. Enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, okay. I mean, I mean, that was one of Trump's worst characteristics. His tweets just sullied the office of the president of the United States. And for a Republican to come up and complain now that Biden was boring, it's like you really see who and what these guys are. And I don't know if this is the time to bring it up, but they've just launched in the last few days a new caucus, the America First Caucus. Ah, yes. And it's utterly terrible. Like I I could go on about this. I don't want to hijack the section of the show, but it, <laughs> it is very much, you see the nexus that you're describing, Jonathan, from, all the way from the Southern strategy until now, and they are making it explicit. I mean, it's like they want to replace the 14th amendment with the 14 words. That's mm. the best way that I just can describe what this thing is, because it is explicitly whiteness. It is a platform and it's also explicitly lies. Right. Yeah. The the platform is it it actually lists things that aren't that don't exist or aren't true. And then even the heritage of Anglo-Saxons, it's not what they think it is. That's not the heritage of white Americans. Right. So it's just completely it's like it was written by an amateur hater. That's all I can say. (laughs) And this is a reality of the contemporary um, Republican Party and it's not an accident, but it is not necessary. Like at the end of the day, a lot of people get confused when they see Republican elected officials not behaving um, the way they expect them to, not responding to general public opinion and things like that. And a lot of people don't understand that the vast majority of uh, members of Congress are elected by a very small segment in a Mm -hmm. practical sense. They are elected by a majority of the people who turn out for Republican primary election. Mm -hmm. And that might only be eight to 10% of the electorate, which means that a majority of that is only four or 5% of their district. Mm -hmm. And that is their constituency. Those are the people who they need to make sure stay happy with them. 
Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that the further political left has so much, well, gets frustrated in their electoral prospects is that a lot more Democrats turn out for primaries than Republicans turn out for primaries. And that makes Democratic primaries more moderate. There's also, I mean, there's several layers to that, the biggest of them being that white liberals completely misunderstand the politics of black and brown Democrats. They project a progressivism on, mm. based on race that does not that is not reflected in actual attitudes. But that, I mean, those again, these are rabbit holes that we could go down. But but the way that this plays out when it comes to this Patriot Caucus or the American First Caucus is these people, they aren't smart. They don't need to be because they're not right. actually appealing to the best among Republican voters, much less the best among the voters in their districts at large. They're appealing to the most involved, the most likely to turn on a Republican primary. And those voters tend to be motivated heavily by emotion, not reason. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be motivated by a narrow set of very, not always directly connected to reality issues. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very diplomatic way of putting that. (laughs) I'm just going to come out and say it since this is not Facebook. Yeah, they're, they're fucking white trash. Okay, their voters are white <laughs> trash, and these two, like particularly like Bobert and uh, Green, oh. they they have high school educations. They're not even they they have no concept of what they're doing. They have convictions in their past. I mean, they these are people who are small time crooks mm-hmm. and idiots yep. who are being yeah. elected to the U.S. Congress and who are just basically trolls. Like those two voted against a bone marrow transplant program. That there, there's no reason. I mean, how could you vote against a bone marrow transplant program? Right. Exactly. Right. And nobody, no other Republican voted against it. Right. Like not even Ted. Right. I mean, not even the Ted Cruz level. Right. I mean, the Senate is a different thing. But there, but the, like, I think your point's a really good one. And I say this about representatives. And <laughs> I recently did some activism in at the county level here in New Jersey. And boy, I mean, the level of person who ends up mm-hmm. in that kind of environment, especially on the Trumpian right, is just yeah. at that level is just a jaw dropping that these folks have any say in the way anything works, right? And it's like, wow. And like you said, this is who Marjorie Taylor Greene is pandering to and Matt Gates and all these people, right? To a large degree, it's who Trump was pandering to. That's right. That's right. Because they, and this is the, the bargain that the Republican Party made to win elections. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party in the U.S., for all practical purposes, from the election of 1932, so from 1933, I guess it was in 1980 they took the Senate, to 1981, the Democrats controlled the U.S. Congress. There were two years in the late 40s, two years in the early 50s when Republicans did. But for all practical purposes, for 50 years, the Democrats controlled the legislative process, really of the country, because they also controlled most of the state legislatures. The executives would go back and forth, but election after election, and with the signing of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, the FDR coalition, which was Mm -hmm. Southern Democrats, Mm -hmm. and what FDR did is he didn't bring Southern Democrats into the party. They were already there because, again, Lincoln Republican slaves. What he brought in was Northern liberals. He brought the the Northern Black voters in. Mm -hmm. He brought Catholics in. He brought unions in. That was Mm -hmm. the FDR coalition in 1932. And like by 1930, the 1936, Democrats had 75 senators 
In the Senate, it only had 96 senators. Like this is before, (laughs) this is like, that is how dominant the Democratic Party was in the 30s. It's it's interesting to yeah. think about this because that also ensured dominance on the Supreme Court, which is what got us mm-hmm. a lot of liberal, a lot of judicial victories on that court. And that's why the conservatives hated it. They determined to turn it around. And I just wanted to point out another part of this that we've yeah. discussed before. There was this article, I believe it was by Jonathan Chait, and we talked about it after the Biden inauguration. And we really talked about it as <clears throat> there had been a liberal coalition that excluded black people that held for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And by including black people, we broke that. And so we're essentially saying that we're not satisfied anymore to go along with this, with this segregated society. But in the process now, we've actually taken a couple of steps back because of the court and because of the Senate and because of this party realignment that you're talking about. And how do you see that getting actually fixed, if ever? I think it will get fixed. I think it's going to get fixed. Time is going to fix it. And the way time is going to fix it is one of the consequences of the incredible reaction to Obama's presidency was the shaping of the political views of millennials. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there's a lot that has to do with the financial meltdown of 2008 that shapes mm-hmm. their views, mm-hmm. but also the way the Republicans responded in such a blatantly obstructionist and to a certain degree and subtext racist Mm -hmm. response to Obama as president pushed millennials distinctly left. So basically speaking, when you look at the generations, the silent generation is the only reliably Republican generation. And they're at about plus eight, plus nine Republican. Even with Biden on the ticket, they actually stayed pretty pretty much there. Hmm. Boomers, the older, it's a large generation. It spans about 20 years. The older ones vote more similarly to, to the silent generation. The younger, more similarly to Gen X. They, in polling, tend to actually zero out. But in terms of actually who goes to the polls, they tend to be a plus three, plus four Republican generation. Gen X trends a little bit Democratic, plus two, plus three generally, but is relatively even. But then you have millennials are plus 16D. Gen Z is plus 16D. Wow. The Republican Party you know, has lost younger voters, and there's no reason to think that Trump and the influence he's having <laughs> not shaping tweens and kids so that they're going to be similar to their predecessors. Every generation follows this S-curve in how they vote. They start out at a certain baseline. They climb slowly in terms of voting participation for the first 10 or 12 years. They start climbing rapidly when they get to their 30s. And then they taper off in in their 50s and 60s and sort of of stay at at a high level. The really interesting thing about Gen Z is that unlike every generation that's preceded them, they're actually starting at a slightly higher baseline than the, than the generation that comes before them. They're actually st- starting one or two points above where Gen X was. And so where silent generation voted at higher levels at 18 than boomers, than Gen X, than millennials, Gen Z actually is bucking that trend, which is a really good sign for them as a generation and for the country. But the overall picture here is that every year you know, these days, about 4 million people turn 18. It's a little bit higher. It's like 4.4 million people in the current generation are turning 18 every year. About 1 million of them are going to vote. And they're breaking 16 to 20% for Democrats. That's a big thing. Now, 
The problem is that for every 4 million of them, only 1 million of them are voting in, in round numbers. Whereas for every 1 million people above 65, about 700,000 of them are voting. To get the same number of people, it, it takes time. But every four years, about 16 million people are turning 18 and about eight or 9 million people over 65 are passing away. Mm-hmm. And that's the fundamental electoral math that has me long-term or even you know, medium-term if you're thinking in, in a couple of decades, mm-hmm. but has me fundamentally optimistic about the future. The danger is the next 15 years or so. Right. Yeah. Like right. that's the danger time because there is the ability to slide out of a democracy and even mm. the formal democracy. And that's what I get nervous about, but we have, but to actually remove the formal democratic elements that we have is really hard. Mm -hmm. Like you can do voter suppression. You can do a lot of things at the margin to make it harder to vote. Yeah. But actually removing the ability of someone who jumps through whatever hoops you put in their way (laughs) and wants to vote is almost impossible. Like you can make someone wait online for eight hours but you can't keep them from voting. And even Trump appointed judges don't go back on those formal democratic things. So that's where my hope is. You can't gerrymander the Senate. You can't gerrymander the presidency very well. You can't really gerrymander the presidency. It just has some built-in advantages for rural voters. Mm -hmm. Right. The house you can gerrymander, but you can't gerrymander it everywhere. And bluntly, the biggest gerrymander in the country is Texas. And in eight or 12 years, Texas is going to be voting blue. Like right. It's going to take a while. It's not next yeah. election. Right. Like, I don't right. think we're going to win the governor's mansion. <laughs> we might not win Ted Cruz's Senate seat in, in, in four years. But I think we're going to win the governor's race in 2026. And if not, we'll win it in 2028. We're going to start winning their state legislature in the 2030s. And as soon as that happens, the gerrymander's gone in Texas. It's gone. Right. Yeah. So well, I, what I, I worry about, okay, I think we can't afford to have another Republican president, period. Mm-hmm. I think if we have another Republican president, what the damage that Trump was able to do, it's now baked in terms of judges, terms of certain bureaucratic changes that he was able to make that are going to take time to undo. And if another, like say an America first caucus president got in in 2024, they could do the kind of damage that could actually, because in the sense of what you're saying, you can't actually, it's very hard to prevent someone from going to the polls altogether, but by shaving at the margins, now you make it, you delay it, you delay it another three years, another five years, whatever, however long it is, by shaving three and five percentage points off of the result. And so that the demographic trend gets pushed out. And in the meantime, if you can dismantle some of the institutions. That's what I worry about. And I don't know if either of you want to take a crack at that. I think that your concern is completely rational. I don't share it. Yay. Um, <laughs> not, n- not because I don't think that, I mean, I agree with you completely that we really cannot afford another Republican president. And I think by 2028, it's going to be very difficult for Republicans to win the White House. But one thing to remember about reapportionment, which is coming, and it's going to hand another three, four to six House seats to what are currently red states, 
is that the Electoral College is fundamentally based on, on the apportionment of the House. Mm -hmm. um, the Senates are fixed, and you can shift Electoral College votes based on the House. But I know that they're engaging in really ridiculous stuff in Georgia. Mm -hmm. They're going to try and make it much harder for people to vote. But the thing about Georgia is I think a dam just broke. Folks like Stacey Abrams, and she gets all the credit and a ton of other people worked with her. And she deserves credit as being an, you know one of a handful of real visionaries and real leaders. But a lot of people did a lot of work. But the thing about Georgia is there's this concept of learned helplessness that it applies in a lot of different scenarios. And one of the places that, I, that in my opinion, it has applied is with Black voters in the South. When you have the experience as a community or as an individual of my vote just doesn't matter because you show up and you vote election after election or champions rise or the Voting Rights Act gets passed and you still can't win in the state, you eventually stop trying. Like yeah. you just stop voting. And what happened in Georgia is that just enough Black voters over a decade of, of concentrated effort registered and continued to vote. And people did continue to vote. People stubbornly, even if we're going to lose, we're going to yep. show up and vote. I mean, those people did the right thing. But getting people who've been discouraged to actually vote was really hard. And then you combine that with the influx of cosmopolitan you know, Atlanta and the suburbs of Atlanta, you throw on top of that Trump driving the suburbs away from the Republican Party. I don't think it was just Trump and his racism and misogyny. I actually think it's because Trump broke a fundamental financial promise between Republicans and suburban moderate to progressive voters, which is we'll keep your taxes low if you keep voting for us. And then Trump turned around and his tax cut screwed not just blue states, but anyone who lived in densely populated, high property mm -hmm. value, high property mm -hmm. tax. Mm -hmm. You're talking Great about point. the assault uh, deduction, right? The assault tax deduction, and not just those provisions, but also the way they shifted tax burdens, all to give a tax cut to corporations and very wealthy people. Basically, they sort of screwed the 10% to give benefits to the 1%. Uh, well said, they, well said. And, mm. and, they, and that 10%, one, there's a lot more of them, and two, <laughs> They really had only been voting Republican for that reason. Like they are legitimately better on racial issues. They're legitimately better on, on gender issues. They're legitimately better on homosexuality and, and, and gay marriage and all those kinds of things, the environment. But they've been voting for Republicans for tax reasons. And Trump and Republicans in Congress broke that compact. And I don't think those voters are ever going to come back. Wow. Um, it used to be, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the St. Louis suburbs, my parents voted for Jimmy Carter twice. But most of the people I went to school with, their parents were Republicans. Mm -hmm. And at, the, at their country clubs, you really didn't walk around as a Democrat. You didn't admit to being a Democrat. My father didn't put a bumper sticker on his car when he went to work, <laughs> like because almost all the executives he worked with were Republicans. Mm -hmm. All of those people are now voting Democratic. Right. Um, you know, maybe their parents aren't, but their kids, my classmates who had been voting Republicans have now changed. And they're not going to go back. It's a tribal identity thing. And once you break the mm -hmm. wall and you mm -hmm. shift, you, you, you change the permissions, you can do that. And so that's, I mean, that's the dynamic in Georgia. But the thing about Georgia and the reason why I'm very excited for 2022 is I really hope we see Stacey Abrams on the ballot as, as a gubernatorial nominee. I can't imagine anyone's going to run against much less beat her in the Democratic primary. I think that the Republicans are going to have a nasty primary with Trump going after Kemp. 
which is going to weaken support of Kemp. <laughs> and I, I think Kemp pulls it out, but I think it's going to weaken him or Kemp will lose and we will have someone weaker than an incumbent governor. And then we also have Reverend Warnock on the ballot. And I think that there are hundreds of thousands of Black voters in Georgia who just could not see the possibility of victory or eligible now, voters who now yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And you combine that with the continued generational trend, the continued growth of Atlanta and its suburbs, the continued rise in education levels in those suburbs and the diversification of them. And I'm not sure they're going to get Georgia back. And then the last thing to remember about the 2020 election is Republicans ran an incredibly traditional GOTV get out the vote campaign in 2020. Mm-hmm. The Democrats didn't. What we did do as a substitute because of COVID was not nearly as effective as a traditional knock on everyone's door, go speak right. to them face to face, go to their door on election day and get them to the polls. All of those kinds of things stopped on the Democratic side. And we also stopped voter registration in March. Wow. 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 In March of, I'm not saying all voter registration, but in March 2020, Democrats nationally were a couple hundred thousand net new registrations up on Republicans. That is normal. Democrats generally lead Republicans in, in, in new registrations. We need to because our voters tend to turn out at slightly too significantly lower levels. We were ahead in March. By November, we were dead even which is basically a net falling, you know, a net loss of several hundred thousand voters nationally, if not a million voters nationally. And that's because motor voter ended when all the DMVs shut down and and people couldn't register cars. All of those sort of automatic registrations that distinctly Mm. favor minorities and people um, lower socioeconomic position, all of that activity stopped and we stopped knocking on doors to register voters and Trump's campaign continued to do it. Wow. Um, And so as close as this election was, particularly in Georgia and Arizona, and to a lesser degree, Wisconsin, we did it with one hand kind of tied behind our backs. Interesting. And that's not going to be true in 2024. So in addition to the demographic, and by demographic, I don't mean racial, I literally just mean generational change. (laughs) In addition to the generational change, And the fact that, again, 16 million younger voters, which means about three or four million voters who trend plus 16 to 20 Democratic are going to turn 18 over the next over the four years between the elections and another nine million older voters who trend about eight, nine, 10 points Republican are going to pass away. That changing of the guard combined with our organizing efforts being actually able to function properly (laughs) And then the last thing is Trump's at war with the RNC. He's draining resources from the RNC. He is raising money into his own pack. (laughs) If he's the the nominee, maybe he can use those pack funds to go register voters. Maybe he will. I don't think so. I think he's going to basically put all the money in his pocket. He'll find (laughs) nice creative ways to do so without blatantly breaking the law in a way that he'll get caught. But he's, I think that's basically what he's going to do with that money, because it is important to remember, he put $60 million into his presidential campaign the first time around. He wants that money back. Yeah, (laughs) he sure does. (laughs) And he's going to get it back through the pack. So I just think that while 2024 is nothing's guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination, but in particular, if Trump is their nominee, I think he gets beaten worse. I don't know. 
Nobody yeah. wants a second go round with that. I no, mean, I just exactly. can't imagine America just like everybody's going to have a good memory of Biden and mm-hmm. a horrible memory of Trump. They're going to have four years to get used to normalcy again. And I just don't see people in mass pulling the lever for another Trump administration of just that madness. And you know what? This was. Uh, this is really a great conversation. I I love talking about these trends, right? I call myself an Obama Democrat famously on this show all the time because I think of myself as hopeful, right? And Mm -hmm. so these trends are hopeful. I want to know, you of course know about the Amazon warehouse uh, Mm -hmm. in Bessemer, Alabama. Biden is by far the most union-friendly president we've had since like since before Reagan and Thatcher, right? Like this guy, mm-hmm. he came out, right, famously and sort of endorsed the the union drive. I wonder what you think about the labor movement. We know that Amazon ultimately won that union election. What do you think about the trends of labor? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think we're starting to see fundamentally labor organizing grows out of the 19th century robber baron abuses. And, and, and it coincides with the first progressive era. Like there's, there's not an accident that those two go together. There's extreme abuses, extreme income and wealth inequalities, the likes of which we are now seeing again today. And there's not an accident that those things go together. But part of the problem that the American labor movement has is it did really well. And in addition to having done really well and created things like the weekend and overtime and paid <laughs> yeah. time off and all, the these other ben- yeah, all these other benefits, it also, as corporations in an information age start analyzing and looking at data, corporations have gotten smarter about how they counter unions. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, it's becoming more and more clear to me just how badly Amazon behaved by historical standards. I'm not convinced that they broke the law Right. in really egregious ways. The problem is the law has been softened. The Democrats did the first damage in the late 60s. Democrats, again, controlling Congress, did some more damage in the 70s. And it's really the Reagan judges and the shift of the courts, one small decision at a time that have sort of completed making organizing much less effective than it was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But at the same time, the abject abuse of workers is much less than it was. Like the Amazon warehouses are apparently kind of horrific or at least really lousy places to work. But compared to factories of the late 19th century. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The the current environment there is better than the best at that point in time. And that's part of the problem the labor movement has. But the reality of the labor movement is they are starting to shift away from actual organizing and more towards what I call soft organizing, just trying to get benefits for workers. Mm-hmm. The problem that the labor unions have is a financial one, which is that Republicans have been systematically cutting off their source of fundings, which is union dues. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a right to work state or it's the attack on public unions and do you actually have to contribute to a union you didn't vote for? Can you just withhold your union dues? Those kinds of attacks are incredibly intentional, incredibly systematic. And there's legislation on the table to start reversing them, the PRO Act. The problem is you can't get the PRO Act through with a filibuster. Right. And we, we could spend some time on Joe Manchin. I, I was going to say. Because there's just... <laughs> Most of it involves mind reading, and I don't think there's any way to read his mind. And he's either going to do the right thing or he's not, and lobbying isn't going to help. I mean, I think Joe Manchin sees himself as and generally is a good human who wants to do good things. It's just that he's also 
a product of his generation. He's in his seventies. He was shaped by a reality that no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure he is going to figure that out fast enough for him to change his mind. Mm -hmm. He -hmm. also represents a plus 40 Trump state. And I'm not talking about this in terms of his electoral prospects, because bluntly, I'm kind of skeptical that he's going to run again. He didn't Mm -hmm. really want to run in 2018. The Democrats twisted his arm and he did. I don't know that he plans to run again. So I don't tend to view his decisions through an electoral lens. Mm. He just wants to represent the people of his state and they're pretty conservative and they're very white (laughs) and they don't have a lot of voter suppression because they don't have minorities they're trying to suppress and they don't really need to suppress Democrats because Democrats can't win elections there. Mm. So they're not a lot of the things that are more national concern aren't of a concern to the West Virginia. And that's how he thinks. So I tend to be a lot more forgiving of him than a lot, not because I agree with him, but just because I understand where he's coming from. And I don't think he's doing it out of malice or out of cynicism. I think he legitimately thinks that the Senate should be more bipartisan. Mm -hmm. I think he is missing the fact that's impossible. (laughs) Right? Um, Like there just aren't 10 Republicans who will support compromise legislation. There are three or four. Mm -hmm. I get the sense too with Manchin that there's a bit of a difference between what he says publicly and what he's actually going to end up doing. And I Mm. do think he's got a a kind of special relationship with Biden. And I think that when push comes to shove, if it comes to getting, I don't know about HR1, I'm not sure if that's going to go through. I sure hope it does. But certainly the infrastructure bill, Mm -hmm. I'll bet you that he and Joe Biden can work something out on the telephone to get to a place that would secure his vote. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Now, that's the other thing to remember about Joe Manchin is he is primarily concerned about financial issues because the state of West Virginia is is one of the most impoverished in the country. It needs these infrastructure bills. Yeah. Throw him a bone. Throw him a bone, for heaven's sake. He's going to get it. Well, (laughs) the the thing is, is he's going to get these things because they're good public policy. Mm-hmm. And Democrats support them, not because, you know, because they're just good. To, they're good public policy. And that's the thing is it's pretty clear that Manchin supports and, you know, agrees with Biden's expansive view of infrastructure. He just doesn't want to ram through another reconciliation bill. Mm-hmm. He wants mm-hmm. to do it through, quote, regular order. He wants it and he will accept some compromises. And frankly, so will Joe Biden. And so will I in principle. Like, There's nothing I want to give up and that's in the, the plan. Right, 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 right. But I actually <laughs> do think that we were better off when we were governing through some level of consensus sure. than when we do it on a strict party line vote. But the thing about this is we are actually, what we are pushing through on strict party line votes is what 60, 70% of the country wants. Exactly. exactly. And it's the distinction between, and I think Biden is engaged in what will be a successful, but probably three to four year public relations campaign of making the point that Republican elected officials are not the Republican party. Mm-hmm. Right. He's and already I, started along those lines. When he introduced the bill in his speech, he actually just mm-hmm. said that. He came out and said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And so the reality is, and I think it's a question of how long and in what ways Joe Manchin and and to a lesser degree, Kirsten Sinema, she's just a little, she's less public and out front on these things. And so he gets a lot of the, the focus and attention, but she generally votes with him. You know, the real question with him is there is a degree to put difference between public statements and, and, and actions. Like, 
he opposed something the parliamentarian wasn't going to allow in the bill anyway, the $15 an hour minimum wage. But he is in favor of an $11 minimum wage and probably could be talked into 12. It's mm-hmm. just that West Virginia doesn't really need or want a $15 minimum wage. Right, Getting them from right. 7 to 11 will be life-changing in that state where cost right. of living is very different than it is here in D.C. or in urban New Jersey. I don't know where you are, Sean. Nevada. Nevada. But, <laughs> but it is very different. And so it's not that he's not interested in, in, in real steps forward. He just might not go as far as the further left would prefer. Mm-hmm. But he is willing to go where really the nation is. And I think that if, instead, if we just ignore the Republicans in Congress as being opposed <laughs> to anything that involves governance, because fundamentally mm-hmm. they've shown themselves over most of a decade now to actually not be interested in passing legislation. At all. Like they had control of Congress for two years with a Republican president, and they were interested in two things, a tax cut done through reconciliation and killing the ACA done through reconciliation. (laughs) And it's not that the Democrats filibustered a lot of stuff in the Senate. They just didn't move legislation. Yeah, at all. They just they funded the government through continuing resolutions or flat funding. Or once the Democrats took control of the House, we just increased spending and they just went along with it. And- like, that's the reality of the current Republican Party. And so, yeah, yeah. we're winding down. Oh, which yeah. Is, which is wild. But I want to briefly just hit the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the most sort of immutable organization and institution in our system. And there is the court packing sort of mm-hmm. uh, thing that was uh, brought up recently by several Democratic senators. But I thought what was really interesting, too, was a recent decision, which I want to just sort of talk about briefly. I, I probably shouldn't open this can of worms, but I think it's important because what ended up happening here was that, uh, and I'll just read a little bit now from Slate. Last Friday night, the Supreme Court issued a 5-4 decision in Tandon versus Newsom, which blocked California's COVID-related ban on religious gatherings and private homes. Although the conservative majority's decision was unsigned and ran just four pages long, it radically altered the law of religious liberty. Since Employment Division versus Smith during the 90s, the Supreme Court has not interpreted the First Amendment's free exercise clause to require religious exemptions to laws that don't discriminate against religion. In Tandon, however, that's the new case. In Tandon, however, the majority effectively overturned Smith by establishing a new rule, often called the, quote, most favored nation theory theory. And under this doctrine, any secular exemption to a law automatically creates a claim for religious exemption. This vastly expands the government's obligation to provide religious accommodations to countless regulations. In Tandon, for instance, this is an important for instance, the Supreme Court held that California had to let people gather indoors for Bible study because it allowed them to gather indoors for a haircut or to eat or to take a bus. If Californians can get pedicures, they must also be able to be permitted to spend hours in close quarters discussing the Bible. And what's worse is that the Supreme Court created this sweeping new rule through its shadow docket, which are cases decided with minimal briefing, no oral argument outside the court's normal procedure. And I just want to get your reaction to that, because we at the Radical Secular, we are about secularism, right? Like, that's our shit. And so this is just, what do you think about this, Jonathan? I mean, we're seeing the effects of Amy uh, Conan Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The court has moved distinctly right. And in particular, it's moved really far right when it comes to this 
concept of what religious liberty is. It's important to note here, like this 5-4 decision, the chief justice was in the minority and he's conservative by every measure. I mean, the court moved distinctly right when Kennedy was replaced with Kavanaugh and, and Roberts became the center of the court. But they've come to, and it's very similar, I think, to the way that the, the conservative Supreme Court rewrote the Second Amendment with the Heller decision, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. they are taking a departure from two centuries of pretty darn settled law of what free exercise means and what an establishment of religion means. And they are turning to a certain degree, turning it on its head. Mm-hmm. And they are basically saying that instead of the government not being able to discriminate against religion, which is what the Supreme Court has viewed the free exercise clause to be for, for centuries, specifically the last several decades from the Smith decision. And now they are saying that no, actually what it means is any exemption given to any law, you have to apply strict scrutiny to that mm-hmm. exemption, right. or it has to be available to religious practice of any sort. And so basically by putting Bible study at the same level of public as public transportation, or Bible study at the same level as grocery shopping. Yeah. Like if you're going to have a general ban on gathering indoors, but you can go grocery shopping, you also have to be able to gather in church for worship is a very new, very novel and pretty darn activist radical agenda. Yes. And to do it through the shadow docket, which is... I mean, the the court makes decisions in quick unsigned opinions or short opinions all the time. Mm-hmm. It disposes mm-hmm. of matters. I mean, the shadow docket includes all the cases that that it rejects, which mm-hmm. is the vast majority of, of things that are appealed to it. But this is now, what is it, the fifth or sixth, maybe the seventh injunction that they have issued. The last time they did that until this slate of, and they've all been religious liberty cases, you know, until a set of religious liberty challenges to the COVID restrictions, they had not issued an injunction like this in five years. Now they regularly stay lower court decisions. They regularly say, hey, until we've heard our appeal, your decision doesn't come into force. That's normal behavior. In fact, most district court and appellate court cases, as soon as you appeal, they stay their own decision. They don't even wait for the Supreme Court to stay their decision. (laughs) But for them to issue injunctions is incredibly rare because they're actually stopping behavior before mm-hmm. they've heard a case. And they're doing it because, and this is the, kind of the normal judicial standard for an injunction, you issue an injunction where you see a harm and the likelihood of the other side prevailing is really low. Mm-hmm. They know they have five votes for this. As soon as they actually revisit you know, the Smith interpretation of, of religious liberty, they're going to overturn it. For sure. And they know that. Yep. Whether they did so with this decision, I feel like that's a little bit of hyperbole because Mm -hmm. it is just Mm -hmm. an injunction. But there's a case coming up through the regular docket that touches on all of these issues. And I think we're going to see a new Supreme Court standard for religious liberty that is not about religious liberty. It's not about- This is something that we were very concerned about last fall when we had our show called Mm -hmm. Gilead, where we talked about the consequences of losing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But as the only non-attorney here, I just had a couple of observations because you guys like have it nailed exactly what this means legally. But from a scientific standpoint, okay, worship is a particular problem because people are singing. I mean, they have their masks off indoors and there's no comparison. They're just going, 
oh, grocery shopping, you know, getting your nails done versus Bible study. They're not actually looking at what's happening in these venues, right? Mm -hmm. They're not looking at the actual risk. It's just, is this religious or is this secular? And that seems to me, it's almost as unprofessional as that America First manifesto. They're just basically just kind of throwing out all the tradition, all of the like settled law, as you said, and they're just coming up with a whole new rationale just from the whole cloth because mm -hmm. they're basically working backward from the result that they want. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. That's exactly right. And that is what they're doing. And the problem here is that government action always has to be rationally related to a legitimate government purpose. That's the base level of judicial scrutiny that's applied to all laws. Like, is this rational? And is there a legitimate government purpose that's related to? The government cannot keep you from you know, dyeing your hair pink. There is no legitimate <laughs> government purpose involved in that. But what they're doing, what they've done here is they're establishing and I expect that we will see a, a full-scale decision that does this, sure. that applies strict scrutiny, which is, what is it? They're, 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 yeah, it's um, so necessarily related to a compelling state interest. That's what it is, compelling uh, state interest. How can we forget this? This is like yeah. first-year law school stuff. Exactly. Well, <laughs> first-year law school was a while ago. It was a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> Here's what's not being weighed. And there is the state, I believe, does have a compelling interest in public safety, right? And so mm -hmm. if, you're, yes. if, you're, if you're measuring it manicure, pedicure versus Bible study, you're not going, okay, what is the risk what is the actual risk of somebody getting ill here and and, and measuring yep. that? You're kind of sidestepping the whole public safety issue. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I yeah, agree. and they're, they're just and that goes to an activist outcome based um, analysis. And again, to tie this back to the earlier conversation, at the end of the day, I think an awful lot of these decisions are setting up discrimination in the guise of religious liberty. Yes. Like I think that where the where this movement is heading and the reason why we are getting decisions like this from this court is I think we're going to first see it in the area of gender expression and sexual orientation, the cake making case example, but I think we're going to see it expand beyond that and it's going to get really interesting really fast and more than a little scary, but I also think that, and this goes to my sort of long-term fundamentally hopeful thing, is I think the more that they do these kinds of decisions, which appeal really heavily to evangelical Christians, well, really white evangelical Christians mm -hmm. in terms of the political, because you don't, from the black evangelical church, you don't see demands for this. A right. little bit around some of the social issues, but not really. These are white evangelical, let's be really clear, agenda items. And the more that they do this, that is a constituency that is dying off. Right. Um, and the more that they cater to it, the more they're going to alienate younger voters. And to bring in one more thing that fit into something we were saying earlier, another thing that's true about younger voters compared to older voters is even ones who identify as conservative and who are voting Republican are distinctly different than their elders. You'd go from about a 10% of 65 plus year old conservatives who believe racism is a real problem to 40% among 18 to 29 year old conservatives. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. environmental issues are, mm -hmm. are, are a much mm -hmm. bigger deal. They are much more open to immigration. They're much less nativist than the older voters. So even when we talk about just partisan shifts that are happening, also the nature of the electorate in the Republican party among those who still stay Republican. And most of them, in my opinion, are going to stay that way because of abortion 
as an mm-hmm. issue. They're mm-hmm. not going to be able to get past that one to vote for a Democrat, but you're going to see the Republican Party have to change how it acts on race. It's going to have to change how it acts when it comes to immigrants. And it also going to see real changes when it comes to the stances on climate change and the environment, right. because yeah. their younger voters are different in those ways too. But on this idea of religious liberty, the writing I see on the wall is we're going to see permission to discriminate based on religious belief. We're going to give pharmacists the permission not to fill prescriptions that are valid. We're going to let doctors not perform procedures that are life-saving. Right. We're going, we're going to give shopkeepers the ability to, like, at the end of the day, we're going to see this doctrine of religious liberty in direct conflict with the Civil Rights Act. That's right. Like, can That's you, right. if your religion views, I don't know what religion this might be, but if your religion <laughs> says that black people are dirty and you don't want them in your hotel, right? because in my hypothetical, it's a legitimate religious belief that you hold as irrational as it is. Does this mean that you can discriminate in a public accommodation on the basis of race? I think I think this is like, the Supreme Court says yes. That's that's where I think that they want to get to. I'm yeah. curious to see if they do, but that's where this is going, and that's what really concerns me about this. Yeah, and then we're seeing in terms of voting behavior, like you were talking mm-hmm. about, right? We've got a pendulum that's swinging. It's going to take decades, right? Because so as the Supreme Court is going to be handing down all these right wing decisions that are horrible, all of a sudden voters are going to are swinging left, right? And so it's going to take another probably twenty years to get the court packed the other way and get the decisions going the other way so that these younger voters are not seeing this kind of discriminatory law. And this goes to your point that we cannot afford to lose the White House. That's like, right. That's we, a great have, we have to control judicial appointments. Have to. For the next, because I'm pretty sure we're going to lose the House mm-hmm. next year. Really? We, oh, man. Yeah. Just reapportionment is enough to flip it because right. Texas and Florida will pick up enough seats, plus the fact that it's the midterm for Biden. And maybe this will break all historical trends and there are reasons to be hopeful that could happen, but that doesn't mean that it will. But we will probably lose control of the House because it's really narrow and history is not on our side. We pro- probably lose control of the Senate in 2024. That's a really bad map for Democrats. Right. The entire upper Midwest and West Virginia are all up for re-election or up for that, that year. A lot of Democratic senators in red states are up for election in 2024. But if we can hold the White House, and it doesn't mean we will lose it. It's just these are hard, these are hard maps. Right. But if we hold the White House, we even if they slow down to a trickle confirmations, mm-hmm. we at least avoid bad choices. Right. 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 And they can hold things up and and they can certainly get away with what they did with Merrick Garland again. But if Justice Thomas were to pass away in 2025, they probably can't hold that seat open for three years and right. get away with it with the public. Right, um, right. And so that's why it's so critical to win the White House. So um, critical. It is, it's becoming our firewall. That's right. I hate to cut you off. Oh, no, uh, we, no. We're, uh, we are. Oh, yeah. We are, we are long on time here, but it's been such an outstanding conversation. Do you want to, you, we've, you've talked a lot about it, your organization. Do you have anything you want to plug before you drop off or any encouragements? You know, I, I would I would encourage people who are interested, particularly we've been talking a lot about the White House. Well, if you want to start contributing right now to the next Democratic nominee for president, and you want to keep doing that month after month for the rest of your life, it starts today. It's 
It starts dot today. That's the whole URL. Just type that into your browser. <laughs> um, we started a presidential project already. And if you can give a dollar a month, you're actually giving $48 every four years. And if you can give five, that's, you know, 200, whatever it is, $240 a year, 240. And having, having five bucks a month is a lot easier than coming up with 250 bucks, you know, in a one-time donation. Right. And if you can actually really afford it and you can do 50 or 60 or $70, you're actually now making yourself a max out donor in federal elections. So that is the one thing I would plug is if you are interested in particularly holding the White House, these things happen every four years and monthly donations pile up to serious amounts of money over 48 month cycles. Right. Right. Let's do it. Let's do it. And Jonathan, (laughs) thanks so much for being here with us today. It was a lot of fun. Super, super informative. And you are are a great guy, a joy to talk to, really easy to talk to. Thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you so much for having me. It was was a real pleasure. I had a lot of fun talking to Jonathan. Sean, does anything stick out to you in particular? Well, all I can say is that I think, as I said at the end of the segment, this is the most inside baseball (laughs) that I have ever heard about donations and fundraising and demographics is destiny, as we know. And he has that down. It's almost like you can predict the future. COVID was a wild card. We still won. That was an Mm -hmm. interesting insight. And I really Mm -hmm. am hopeful. I hope he's wrong about the House in 2022 and the Senate in 2024. I, I can't accept that we're going to lose both houses. But anyway, he's the guy to ask. And so, you know, if we have to suck it up, then that's what we have to do. Yeah, absolutely. He was just such a knowledgeable guest and he's such a knowledgeable guy and uh, really interesting to listen to and talk to. I think it was probably one of the episodes that you and I did the least talking just because (laughs) Jonathan has, he just a wealth of knowledge. And like you said, this insider's perspective that is, I think, pretty unique for us on this show. And I'm just really glad he was able to come. He's also just a very impressive guy and just all around, very impressive guy. So Jonathan, if you're listening to this, you're a very impressive guy. Thanks for being here. Totally. (laughs) So, um, well, thanks everyone for being here. And if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Christoph Defoe. Thanks for being here. And remember that wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.